Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back. This is your host, Mohammed. We'll start today's session with a few physics questions, so bear with me. Again, today's session will start with a couple of physics questions. What is the average energy of filtered spectrum? Otherwise, the question is asking how much energy is left over after we filtered uh, x-rays produced by uh, at the source. So again, the average energy for a filtered spectrum is between one-third to one-half of the maximum energy. Let's say we have a maximum energy of 60 kVp for a beam, the average or filtered spectrum energy would be one-third of 60, which is 20, to one-half of 60, which is 30. So 20 to 30 keV is the final energy of the filtered spectrum. Again, energy of the filtered spectrum is between one-third to half of the maximum energy. What is T1 relaxation? T1 relaxation is the time it takes for the tissue to recover to its longitudinal state after the administration of the RF pulse. Again, T1 is the time it takes for tissue to recover to its longitudinal state or parallel to the magnetic field. So T1 depends on returning to T longitudinal state. That's how I remember it, that the one looks like an L. So T1 is T longitudinal. T2 relaxation is the time it takes for the tissue to regain to its transverse orientation or perpendicular to the magnetic field after the RF pulse was administered. T2, if you think of the two, T starts with a T and two start with as well as a T, same as transverse, transverse starts with a T. So T2 is T2 transverse and it it's the time it takes to go back to the transverse magnetization. T2 is always shorter than T1, meaning it takes less time to go back to transverse orientation than it takes to go back to the parallel orientation. Again, T1 is returning to the longitudinal state and T2 relaxation is returning to the transverse state. T2 is always shorter than T1. How to reduce chemical shift artifact? First of all, let's understand what is chemical shift artifact. There is actually type one and type two chemical shift, but I will go into details more later. Now let's stick with standard chemical shift when they say the word chemical shift. Chemical shift, first of all, it occurs in the frequency encoding direction, and it is due to differences in the resonance frequency of fat and water, which leads to spatial misregistration between fat and water. Again, Chemical shift artifact is in the frequency encoding direction, and it is due to differences between the resonance frequency of fat and water. This differences lead to spatial misregistration of fat and water molecule location. Now, how to reduce chemical shift artifact? One, we can decrease the voxel size. If we decrease the voxel size, then we don't have as much fat and water in the same voxel. Second thing we can do is increase receiver bandwidth and use fat suppression technique again. Decrease voxel size, increase receiver bandwidth, and use fat suppression. These are techniques to reduce chemical shift artifact. To summarize it again from the top, chemical shift artifact happens in the frequency encoding direction due to difference in resonance frequency between water and fat and leads to spatial misregistration. How to correct it? We can decrease voxel size, we can increase receiver bandwidth, and we can use fat suppression sequences or add fat suppression to the MRI sequences that we're obtaining. What sequences minimize susceptibility to artifact from hardware or minimize blooming artifact? So 
we said Bloomin artifact or susceptibility is most prominent in GRE images because it does not use the 180 degree refocusing uh, pulse. So spin echo sequences or SE sequences use the 180 degree refocusing pulse, which corrects for magnetic field inhomogeneity, and this limits the susceptibility artifact from hardware. Susceptibility artifact is artifact in the transverse magnetization. Let's repeat everything again. Sequences minimizing susceptibility artifact are the sequences that use the 180 degree refocusing pulse, which corrects for magnetic field inhomogeneity. This is the spin echo sequences. So all spin echo sequences will use the 180 degree refocusing pulse. So we'll have minimal susceptibility artifact. And finally, susceptibility artifact is in the transverse magnetization direction. I think this is enough physics for today. What is the trochlear nerve? So trochlear nerve is cranial nerve number four, and it controls the superior oblique muscle of the eye, causing it to do medial and inferior movement. Again, trochlear nerve is cranial nerve number four, controls the superior oblique muscle. Role of the superior oblique muscle is medial and inferior movement of the eye. Enhancement pattern between carcinoid and gist tumors in the bowel. So in the episode from yesterday, we mentioned that carcinoid is hypervascular. So carcinoid tumors in the bowel would also demonstrate hyperenhancement in the late arterial phase. Just tumors would demonstrate isoattenuation to bowel. So they're very hard to find if they're small. Again, carcinoid would demonstrate hyperenhancement. Just would demonstrate isoattenuation to bowel or similar to bowel enhancement. What is the mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome? This is Kawasaki disease. Again, mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome, same thing as Kawasaki disease. Okay, what are the tracing on the hepatic vein or main hepatic vein near the confluence of the IVC? And usually they're trying to say uh, the spectral tracing and understanding how it relates to the cardiac cycle. Understand that anything in the positive or above the line means retrograde flow because we're talking about a vein. Anything negative or under the line of tracing means integrate flow or flow toward the heart. The first peak or the A wave that they'll show, which is above the line, meaning it's a retrograde flow back into the liver, would indicate atrial systole, meaning the atria is contracting. As you could imagine, if it contracting, no blood is going to be allowed to come from the liver into the heart, and rather it's going to go backward or back up of flow. So that would be above or the first tracing, the A-wave. Second, following atrial contraction in the cardiac cycle, what we get, we get is ventricular contraction or ventricular systole. What the ventricular systole does is it kind of creates negative pressure because as the ventricle contracts, it's now allowing blood to come from the liver. So we'll see reversal of flow. Now we'll have blood going from the liver into the heart. And so that's the first down peak and it's called the S wave or systole, so ventricular systole. And then part of the heart cycle after the ventricular systole is the atrial diastole. And that explained the second down peak which is the D wave or atrial systole. Again, we have atrial kick or systole, which is above the line or positive, meaning retrograde flow. Then we have ventricular systole, which is downward peak. And then the second downward peak or the the, uh, D wave, which is the atrial diastole. Again, atrial systole, ventricular systole, and atrial diastole, A, S, and D. Management for gadolinium 
for breastfeeding mother. Instructions for that mother is basically pump and dump for 24 hours and then you can resume feeding. There isn't really any hard or scientific data supporting that, but this is the recommendation for management for breastfeeding mothers who get MRI. Obviously, MRI in a pregnant woman contrast is contraindicated, so we never use gadolinium for pregnant women. What is the age of thyroid development in fetus? So thyroid begins development at eight weeks. Why is that an important question? If we are going to treat thyroid in nuclear medicine, we do not want to give any iodine that will potentially kill the developing thyroid. So we're able to treat a pregnant mother up to six weeks of pregnancy. And at eight weeks is when the thyroid begins to develop. In reality, we're never sure of the exact date of pregnancy or conception. And so we typically avoid it. But for test, for test questions, we can treat pregnant person up to six weeks uh, because thyroid begins to develop at eight weeks and any iodine that we give can destroy the developing thyroid of the fetus. Ultrasound dis- descriptors for hydrosalpinx. So hydrosalpinx would appear as an echoic tubular structure with incomplete septation. So incomplete septation on ultrasound is a key for defining the salpinx. So hydrosalpinx is an echoic tubular structure that is dilated with incomplete septation, obviously has to be in a location proximal to the ovary or uterus. What is acinar cell carcinoma? This is a rare and aggressive pancreatic adenocarcinoma and typically seen in elderly males. The malignant cell produce large amounts of lipase, which leads to lipase hypersecretion syndrome, which present with subcutaneous fat necrosis, bone infarcts, which would cause joint pain and isonophilia. Again, acinar cell carcinoma is a rare variant of pancreatic adenocarcinoma, typically seen in elderly male, would present with symptoms of lipase hypersecretion, which includes subcutaneous fat necrosis, bone infarct causing joint pain, and eosinophilia. What is the mechanism of system EB scan? So system EB enters myocardial muscle based on passive diffusion. So it depends on muscular perfusion is how much system EB will get to the heart. Once it gets inside the myocyte through passive diffusion, it then will bind into the mitochondrial membrane and it will stay in the mitochondrial membrane. Why staying in the mitochondrial membrane is important because that distinguishes it from thallium. So thallium does go into the heart with passive diffusion, which is which means it's proportional to myocardial perfusion, but thallium would undergo redistribution, and system EB or technetium system EB will remain fixed to the myocardium. System EB is hepatobiliary secreted. Again, system EB would accumulate in tissues with high mitochondria, particularly the heart, and that's how we use it for imaging of the heart. Diffusion into the muscle would depend on perfusion because it's passive. And then once it gets into the muscle, it gets stuck on the mitochondria. Osteochondral lesion, this is a general term that describes changes related to localized cartilage and subchondral bone injury. Etiologies include osteochondritis desiccans, which is thought to be due to microtrauma, subchondral collapse, secondary to avascular necrosis, and osteochondral impact fracture, which additionally can be post-surgical. Again, Osteochondral lesion just describes a lesion that involves the osteo, osteo, which is bone, and cartilage surrounding the bone. So it's at the articular surface, can be from multiple 
factors and can be seen in different populations. Particularly, it's common in pediatric patients. And there are different main names of disorders that we'll talk about them later. Common locations include the femoral condyle, humeral head, talus, and capitulum of the femur. Again, osteochondral lesion, it's just a word that describes injury into a cartilage and a bone around the joint space due to multiple factors. Continuing with osteochondral lesions or defect, if you X-ray of the rest shows diffuse sclerosis and flattening of the lunate bone with associated slight negative ulnar variance. What is the disorder they're trying to get at? They're trying to get at avascular necrosis of the lunate, otherwise known as Kahn-Bach disease. Again, X-ray shows diffuse sclerosis and flattening of the lunate with some ulnar negative variance. They're trying to get to Kahn-Bach disease or avascular necrosis of the lunate. Risk factors for development of cholangiocarcinoma, colodocal cysts, primary sclerosing cholangitis, familial adenomatous polyposis syndrome, colonorachus sinensis infection. This is typically seen in the Far East and thorium exposure. This is an alpha emitter that used to be used as a contrast agent but has not been used recently, well, since the 50s. Thorium Uh, Dioxide is also associated with angiosarcoma of the liver and HCC. It's really not used anymore or have not been used for 70 years. Again, risk factors for development of cholangiocarcinoma include colodocal cyst, primary sclerosing cholangitis, familial adenomatous polyposis, colonorachus sinensis infection, and thorium dioxide exposure. I think we'll stop here for today. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. And again, uh, Let me know if you have any questions.